island hopping in Croatia, underrated wine, and dirty macaroni. This week, we're in Croatia and Montenegro. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is where we explore the food of the world at the Destination Eat Drink podcast and DestinationEatDrink.com. This week, my guest is travel writer for Rick Steves Europe, Cameron Hewitt. But before we get to Cameron, would you support our Destination Eat Drink project? It's super easy, and it's only a couple bucks. Just go to DestinationEatDrink.com and click on the Contribute button, and thank you very much. Cameron Hewitt has worked for Rick Steves Europe as a guidebook writer for the better part of two decades. He spends three or four months every year traveling to Europe, updating guidebooks, and discovering new interesting places, things to do, and food to try. Cameron tells me about returning to Europe for the first time in two years and reclaiming his love of travel, mourning the loss of some of his favorite spots, and island hopping in Croatia. We talk about Croatian food and wine, and then take a trip to Montenegro's Bay of Couture. Plus, Cameron shares what happens when you become a tabloid headline in Scotland. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Cameron Hewitt, welcome back to Destination Eat Drink. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Brent. It's great to talk with you. You just got back from another whirlwind trip to Europe. I guess I shouldn't phrase it that way. It makes it sound like uh, this is something unusual. You spend a lot of time traveling, updating guidebooks, doing research and whatnot. But this was really the first summer when travel was trying to get back to, and I'm using air quotes here, normal. Um what are your takeaways or observations about what travel is like now? Is Has it changed at all? Is it different in any way? Yeah, it's interesting being back at it. I was, uh, for almost two full years, I, I couldn't travel like a lot of us uh, during the pandemic. So this year, I've already traveled more than four months to Europe. That's even more than my usual rate. So I had a trip in the spring, uh, February and March for about five weeks. Then in the summer, May and June, it was another... Um, I guess six weeks. And then I just got back from another six or seven weeks in, in Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia, and Switzerland. And it's it's kind of been interesting to see how things have changed over the course of the year, even, because um, this this was a year of tremendous change. I, I said early in the year when I was beginning my travels uh to people who would ask, like this, that you know, the the theme this year is expect the unexpected, <laughs> be flexible. Right, right. So I mean, in the spring, I think things were slower to get back to normal than than people might have hoped for two reasons. One was the Omicron variant kind of cropped up around the holidays and it caused a lot of people who were maybe going to go earlier in the year to, to postpone or to think twice. And then you have, of course, the invasion of, of Ukraine um, in, in February as well. And I think there, especially for Eastern Europe, that was a, a, kind of a damper on people who were planning on getting back to travel. And then, uh, you know, it was really interesting. This, I was in Rome and London in March, just as museums were literally opening up after being closed for a couple of years and they were still figuring it out. And I guess I would say over the course of the year, it's amazing to me how much, you know, things did get, quote, back to normal. You know, it felt in February and March like things were still very tentative. By the time I got back in May and June, you know, everyone was kind of in full swing. And by the time I went back in September and October, 
people were just exhausted. I mean, everyone I talked to was like, hey, this has been a great year. It's such a relief and so satisfying to get back to what we love doing. But number one, it was a weird year. There was just a lot of strange, mainly COVID-related, but not exclusively COVID-related things that that kind of made it a tough year, challenging year. And, you know, we're also not used to this, you know, after, after not either whether you work in tourism in Europe or whether you're a traveler like me, two years of not doing your normal thing. It's just it was harder to do everything. And so I think that the theme I found late in the year was, man, we need to we need to break. Like <laughs> We need this winter to catch our breath. Um, but I think the good news for travelers is, yeah, by the especially by mid-year and let, let it later half of the year, things feel very much back to normal. And, uh, you know, I was in Croatia here at the end. Uh, my last part of my trip in October, September and October. And Croatia actually opened up a little bit for tourism, even in late 2020. In 2021, they didn't have a lot of Americans, but they had a close to a normal season, um, mainly of, of European travelers. And so I would ask people in Croatia, like, oh, how, did, how, how are things going since the pandemic? And for them, they're like, what are you talking about? That was two years ago, you know, whereas other parts of Europe, oh, okay. um, you know, I could really, I could tell there was a lot of reentry kind of uh, headaches. But in Croatia, they're already kind of getting burned out again on <laughs> all the travelers. As you know, we're based in Portugal. We live in Portugal now. And we made a trip in the spring to Ireland. And it was fantastic. We had a great time. We saw some friends from Chicago. It was a blast. But because of strictly because of the airline situation, we vowed that we were not going to fly anymore for the rest of this year. And, uh, you know, it's been kind of a blessing because we've got this whole country of Portugal that we can visit by train and by bus and whatever, and we can explore our own backyard. But we said, look, until this airline thing gets figured out and we were traveling that weekend, I don't know if you saw it, but they had the the European Cup final and people were stuck for hours and hours in airports. There were lines that were literally out the airport and down and, you know, people were waiting to go through security for eight hours or more. And we said, you know what, we can't do this until they get it figured out. And what I hear you saying, Cameron, is they kind of got it figured out at this point. You know, I, I would say the airport chaos, especially that peaked over the summer, was maybe the hardest thing in some ways. Um, you know, especially COVID restrictions kind of were drawn down early in the year, like late spring, early summer. Um, I still wore a mask just out of a, an abundance of caution when I was on a train or a plane. But, you know, by summer and fall, uh, you know, you didn't have to test, for example, to fly home to the U.S., this sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, the thing I heard about a lot in terms of major headaches, I mentioned earlier, some of the some of the difficulties this year were COVID related, others not. I think the airline stuff was probably a little of both. I think that the airlines airports were really short staffed because still after the pandemic, um, as with everywhere, staffing levels are, are not what they what they could be. Uh, I got very lucky. I, I flew over and back three times this year and took some internal flights. And the worst that happened to me was, um, you know, my wife flew with me to Switzerland and our bag got delayed coming in from Amsterdam. And we just uh, had it delivered to our hotel later that night, you know, so we got very lucky. But I know exactly what you're talking about. There was a lot of uh, stories of, of you know, long lines at airports, people missing connections, bags missing connections. When we did fly through Amsterdam on that trip, I remember we were taxiing at the Amsterdam airport and I looked out the window and I saw the terminal building off in the distance. And I saw a long line of people arriving to check in for their flight, stretching outside of the terminal building. This was early September. 
And I thought, well, I guess I'm glad we're we're changing uh, <laughs> changing planes here, not originating here. I've heard a lot of people. Amsterdam was one of the major choke points this summer. A lot of our friends trying to go through Amsterdam were just like, oh, can't do it, never again, or at least until until things get better. Well, and if you don't mind, Brent, I'll just add, I, I'm really determined to be optimistic uh, this year, especially. Fair enough. Maybe I'm being a bit of a Pollyanna, um, but when I do hear about a lot of airport problems, but you don't hear about people's trips that go smoothly. And I think there's no doubt that there were more problems than usual this year. But don't, you know, I, I kind of, people ask me when I was planning the September trip, you know, are you sure you want to go back to Europe? with that possibility looming. And it's kind of like, you know, it's a crapshoot. It's always a crapshoot. I've had travels during perfect times when I missed a connection or my my flight got canceled and I got stuck somewhere overnight. That can happen anytime. It was more likely to happen at this stage. But with all the traveling I did, um, you know, I kept thinking that every time I had a, a, a connection that went perfectly according to schedule, I thought, well, you know, you, no one's going to hear about this connection. They're going to hear about the ones that got blown up. So, you know, it wasn't impossible to travel this year, although I, I absolutely understand people's um, you know, concern about it. I also think everyone needs to have a, a realistic understanding of their own threshold for uncertainty. And so what I started saying early in the year uh, to my followers on Facebook and uh, and uh, the people we talked through through Rick Steve's Europe is, if you know you have a very low threshold for, you know, dealing with situations that, that go sideways, this is probably not a year that you want to be traveling a lot. But if you're willing to kind of roll with it, it, it was it was certainly still a very rewarding year to travel. Excellent points all, Cameron. So you you go to Europe mostly for work. You know, 95% of what you're doing is work-related, and you're updating guidebooks. And, you know, during this COVID time, it was a very difficult time for folks. You said you hadn't been back in a couple of years. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was some of these places that closed down during COVID, they did not reopen. They closed forever. And when one of my favorite places closes down, I'm thinking of a place in Dublin specifically, but there's lots of places that I love that have closed down. I feel crushed. You know, I feel like personally, like, oh, I'm really depressed. Um, I'm wondering, were there any of your favorite places that you went back to and you're like, oh man, I can't believe this place closed down or I can't believe they couldn't make it through or I'm really sad that I won't be able to visit here anymore. Oh, absolutely. And I, I guess I would say in general, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, I work with Rick Steves and, and we work on the best-selling guidebooks in the U.S. And uh, during the pandemic, we were very concerned about all of our favorite little, we describe them as kind of our little mom and pop businesses, because a lot of the places we put in our guidebooks are not big, you know, corporate owned things. They're, they're you know, a family that runs a hotel or a restaurant. And we felt like those people were potentially very vulnerable to all this. So the good news is having he and I both have traveled a lot this year, and we found that vast majority of our favorite places are still standing. So we were, first of all, just totally relieved about that. We thought we might have to go in and, you know, take out tons and tons of uh, our guidebook listings. And we found, you know, most of the good places, the reason we had them in the book is because they're good. And the ones that were good generally survived pretty well. There is one I'm thinking of, though, that was a real disappointment um, in Mostar, the city in the southern part of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, it's a very popular day trip destination from, from the Dalmatian coast in Croatia. There's a There was a wonderful, uh, like a microbrew pub. I think it was called Black Dog Pub. And it was run by an uh, American expat um, who I believe had come to work in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s during the war, even, I think, right after the war as a humanitarian relief um, worker. And just fell in love with the place. And, and he had opened this beautiful, fun, beautifully situated too, a uh, little microbrew pub. 
And one thing I loved about the place, it was a, just a great hangout. It was a wonderful place just to, you know, nurse a beer and, and relax. Um, but he made a point, you know, Mostar is still somewhat of a divided city after the war. There's still a part of town that's for the Croats and a, a part of town that's for the Muslims or the Bosniaks. And there is a lot of mixing between the populations. But even all these years after the war, there's a lot of tensions in the community. And I remember one thing I loved about it wasn't just the experience of going there, but that he hired, he made a point to hire employees from each of the different communities in Mostar because he wanted his pub to be kind of a a, a symbol of reconciliation and, and kind of progress. And, you know, that was that one hurt. He actually emailed me, I think in 2020 or even 2020, I think it was 2021, he wrote and he said, you know, we made it through the first year with with help, a little help from the government and just kind of using all our savings. But we're at a point where we've realized we don't know when this is going to end and we're going to have to close down. And uh, it was that was a real a real bummer because I just I love those places that aren't just great places, but they have a great story behind them as well. Yeah, that's disappointing. Um, you, you mentioned that you came back from Croatia, from uh, Slovenia. We talked a lot about Slovenia last time you were on the show. I want to talk a little bit about Croatia this time because it's a place that I really love. And, you know, one of the great things to do in Croatia, a lot of people go to Dubrovnik, but one of the great things to do in Croatia is to island hop along the Dalmatian coast there. You can do it in a day trip or you can make a whole vacation, you know, just going one island to the other. Talk a little bit about um, this kind of itinerary and your recommendation for how to enjoy these beautiful Croatian islands. Yeah, that's that's a, a good question. It's one I get a lot. In fact, I had a coworker who's one of our travel consultants here at my office, and she had a little break. She's a tour guide also. She had a little break between her tours uh, this fall, and she she said, well, you know, if I had five days to spend on Croatia's Dalmatian coast, how should I spend it? And that's a very common question. And I'd say that if you're kind of thinking about how to plan a trip there, there's kind of the two kind of poles or the tent poles, I guess, would be the big city of Split up in the northern part of the Dalmatian coast. And of course, Dubrovnik, which is sort of this the, the tourist darling and just an incredibly beautiful city that's there at the southern end of the Dalmatian coast. So I would say if you've got, you know, five, six days a week in the region, you want to make sure you spend a little time in each of those towns, one or two days each, depending on how much time you've got. And then there are these really handy direct uh, speedy catamarans that zip between those two cities and stop off at a couple of great islands. And the two that we have in our guidebook that are kind of the obvious choices, um, there, there's one that's further north close to Split. It's called Hvar, H-V-A-R, Hvar. And that's kind of the, it's kind of the jet set destination. It's become really famous for its nightlife and it's very expensive and kind of ritzy. Um, and then a little farther south, a little closer to Dubrovnik is another island called Korchula. And I kind of, I guess I like Korchula a little bit better because it's a little, little more close to, close to the ground. It's a little earthier. It's, it still feels a little more like a, an old fishing town as opposed to a, a glitzy tourist destination. I used to say it was, it was less expensive than Huar and it still is, but it's, that difference has subsided a little bit. I, one thing, a thing I want to warn people and let people know is everyone in Croatia this year was, was lamenting how the prices have gone up drastically for everything, but specifically food, restaurants and hotels. Um, you know, everything's kind of gone up a lot over the last couple of years. It's really a well, I think some people still think of Croatia as a, a bargain basement destination. They think it's quote Eastern Europe and therefore it's a cheap place to travel. And that is just absolutely not true anymore. It's, it's, and you know, if you want to eat in the old city of Split or in the old town of Dubrovnik, it's hard to find a place that has entrees for less than 20 euros, you know, and if oh, you wow. find one, it, it might not be the best quality. So that was a big theme. Uh, but in terms of island hopping, these catamarans make it easy. And those are the obvious choices, but there's 
I mean, there's hundreds of islands in Croatia. And if you wanted to get a little, those are both pretty well on the beaten path. So if you wanted to get farther off the beaten path, there's several other smaller islands that are take a little more effort to get to, but it would help you get away from some of the crowds. You know, speaking of these islands, there's an island called Pag, P-A-G, that I actually haven't been to, but I love the cheese from there. There's a there's a special cheese, a sheep's milk cheese, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's called a pash, pashki sir. Pashki is... Uh, adjective form of pog so it's pashki si is pog cheese <laughs> and it's just it's delicious because those sheep are out grazing on you know salt grass from the uh you know this grass that's growing near the uh near the adriatic sea and the cheese is absolutely exquisite i would imagine that going there and having some of the cheese would be a real great experience yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's fun because each island has its own its own sort of claims to fame. So that's part of the fun of of traveling place to place. And I, it's interesting because pug, pug cheese has always been, I mean, even years ago, that was recognized as sort of a, a great kind of Croatia wide specialty. But one thing I've noticed more recently is the the sort of foodie sensibility is becoming a little more appreciated and understood among the people of Croatia. And so whereas you used to go to a restaurant um in a place like Korchula, and it would just be a generic, you know, a generic menu of pasta dishes you could get anywhere like spaghetti carbonara or something. They're starting to really try to go back to their roots and find dishes that are a little more unique to the island. And I think it's fun to watch this happening because I think it's sort of like, well, we eat this kind of very specific kind of pasta preparation and noodle on this island, but that's just for us. And for the, for the tourists, we give them the the spaghetti carbonara or the spaghetti with tomato sauce. And now they're starting to realize, oh, actually, when people come here, they really want to, to try what we eat. And so it's been fun to watch some of these things get elevated a little bit more. It's so funny when that happens because, you know, I think the mentality is, oh, no one no one is going to care about this. We're just going to give them, you know, pizza or, you know, whatever dish that they're familiar with. And now, like you said, people are coming specifically to travel on their stomach and to, uh, you know, find these unique dishes. Um, what are some of, what are some of these dishes that you've enjoyed as you've been either island hopping or maybe uh, in and around other parts of uh, mainland Croatia? Well, for example, there's a noodle that is called mbakaruli, which is very close to the word for macaroni, um, but it's not exactly like an Italian or an American macaroni. It's I think they're usually hand rolled and it's kind of uh, kind of folded over. So it is it is a tube shaped pasta, but it's hand rolled. Um, and that's an example of something that I don't remember seeing on too many menus at all, even even five years ago, but certainly 10 years ago. That was not something that I was aware of. And I've, I've noticed in, I think, uh, you know, Korchula, Dubrovnik, in the southern part of Dalmatia especially, I start to see that on every menu. And the preparation that they are pushing these days is uh, sporky macaruli, which is dirty macaroni, basically, um, <laughs> which sounds unappetizing, but it's actually really delicious. It's got like a beef a beef stew kind of a, a slow simmered beef stew made with red wine and usually seasoned with cinnamon. So it has a little bit of a different flavor to it. And they put that over the macaruli um, and it's, it's really delicious. So it's, it's kind of fun. It, and it's also nice because I think I want people to travel not for that kind of generic international quote, international experience, standard experience, but I want people to travel and, and have access to something they can only have in that place. So again, it's really fun to see a dish like sporky macaruli becoming a little more embraced and kind of recognized. It's nice too, because I think it's part of a process of the people of Croatia 
taking pride in what's local, which hasn't always been the case. I think especially during the Yugoslav period, everything was collectivized and it was mass tourism and it was what food can we crank out. Um, another Here's another great example. In the interior part of Croatia, Plitvica Lakes National Park, which if, if you know anything about Croatia, this is this beautiful national park uh, with uh, lakes and waterfalls. If you think a beautiful picture of waterfalls in Croatia, it's probably from Plitvica Lakes National Park. And it's deep in the interior of the country. And I, I, there was an old kind of hotel run restaurant that always used to be kind of junky and they've now renovated it, um, but kept it very rustic and traditional. And almost everything on the menu has lamb because that's a local specialty there. And um, it was really fun to kind of go in and instead of opening the menu and seeing, you know, lots of international dishes that were catering to people from all over the world. There's, you know, the items that are special for that region, which is called Lika. Um, especially for that that region were actually flagged on the menu with a special little symbol. And they were really, and most of them were lamb lamb dishes. And uh, people were clearly being pushed to the to the local choices, which is something, again, that never would have been the case years ago. What about the wine? That's another thing that I love about Croatia. I remember from my visits to Croatia, especially in the Istrian Peninsula, the, uh, the wine was very rustic. And I don't use that term as a pejorative at all. It just means, you know, it wasn't as uh, refined um, as some other wines that you might get. So the quality could be very good, but, you know, you might get uh, a little more tannins than you might in some other kinds of wines. Uh, what was your experience enjoying wines on this most recent trip? What was the quality like, Cameron? I mean, I think the quality of Croatian wines is, is outstanding and they're not very well known internationally because they just don't export very much and just because they don't have that international brand or awareness. But I think actually, especially even just in the last, I'd been there maybe three or four years ago. And even in that time, I see the wine industry developing at, a, at an astonishing pace. I mean, again, going back 20 years, 30 years um, during the Yugoslav period, a lot of wine production was collectivized. And so everything, all of the kind of unique distinctions between different wines were, were much together and it was all about kind of big, you know, big industrial production. And Bulk wine. this is something that's taken, yeah, but it's taken a quarter century, but they've, you know, slowly people are going back and reclaiming a family, you know, either people going back to their, their own heritage or sometimes people bringing in know-how from other parts of the world and deciding they want to build their winery in, in Croatia somewhere. So I have some amazing experiences with Croatian wines. There's a, a region just north of Dubrovnik, and it's this long, skinny peninsula called Peljašac. Peljašac is the name of it, and it's an hour and a half drive from Dubrovnik, um, and that has some of the best wines in Croatia. And it's I have a, a local contact in Dubrovnik who actually runs a wine bar there, and he took me on a day tour up to Peljašac. And we already had in our guidebook several great places there, and he took me to just as many new ones that were either new or new to him or you know, had kind of emerged and evolved since the last visit I was there. And I just was blown away at the quality of the wines and also the care with which these vintners are are approaching their craft. And some of them, there's one guy, and I'm sorry, I could look it up, but I, I forget the name of it. But one guy, um, he's really an academic. He went and studied wine production and he makes great wines, but he also, he's kind of gone back to some heritage wines. Like there's a kind of wine that basically hasn't been made in Croatia in hundreds of years. And he kind of tracked down through genetics, you know, the original grapes that were used for this wine. And he's, he's planted some of these grapes, figured out a way to, 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 to track down some, something that's very similar, or even with, with hybridization, he's created some, um, not new, but kind of trying to recreate some old vines. And some of the stuff he's doing is just really exciting. 
That is so cool. I love when they try to resurrect some of the, whether it's a heritage vegetable or whether it's one of these old grapes that has pretty much been forgotten for uh, forever because either it's hard to grow or, you know, it's fallen out of favor for whatever reason. So I'm really happy to hear this. And the other thing that I notice when you're telling me that story, Cameron, is how Jones do you get when you discover a new place? That must be like uncovering a, a little diamond for you when you find a place that you didn't even, you're not going back to a place and just saying, okay, check mark, this place is still good. This is a brand new place for you. That must be awesome. Yeah, it's 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 a really fun and satisfying part of my work. And you're right, a lot of what I'm doing, some trips I go and I'm actually writing a new guidebook. So it's all new scouting. And that's, in some ways it's more work, but it's also more fun. But most of my trips are updating. So, you know, 80% of my time, 90% of my time is spent just checking what's there. But I'm always on the lookout for new discoveries. And this is a case where I had a little extra time in Dubrovnik. And I said, you know, I could take I could take a day at the beach or I could uh, go out with this friend of mine, Sasha, and he could he could take me to some interesting new wineries and make these discoveries. And it's really gratifying for me because I find a place like like these these many wineries that I just I'm going to be putting in the book for next year. And then for years to come, it's very satisfying knowing a lot of travelers who otherwise wouldn't have thought to go there or wouldn't have known where to go if they were in the region. Uh, I often get feedback or I bump into people who are who are using my book and knowing that it'll have that concrete sort of that tangible of a impact on people's trips is extremely gratifying. It's you know, it's worth all the hard work easily because I I know how many people are going to discover this place thanks to that work. And the people who are recommended in the book, these these these, you know, vintners who deserve a little more attention are going to get a little more attention now. And that's also they they work hard and they deserve they deserve a bigger customer base, a little more attention than they've been getting. And so that's, it's fun to be a part of that equation too. Before we leave Croatia, I did want to talk a little bit about Dubrovnik itself because it's been kind of held up as the poster child for over-tourism for a lot of different reasons. You just came back from Dubrovnik. You wrote the guidebook. So I'm going to ask you, Cameron, what are your tips for folks who are actually thinking of going to Dubrovnik, who have it on their bucket list, to maybe get the most out of it, but, you know, not be elbow to elbow with all of humanity the whole time? And that's a good question. And you're exactly right. Dubrovnik is one of the, if you listed five towns that are kind of becoming notorious for over-tourism, I think Dubrovnik's on the list. Um you know, most of the tourists, there's a couple of things. It's very crowded in July and August because you get people, other Europeans, especially coming in the summer for like a beach break. And then it's the cruise, the cruise ships. Um, now, the good news is Dubrovnik starting a few years ago is they, they had no regulation of cruise ships for a while or no, I guess, no limit to cruise ships. There was regulation. But I had a, a um, local tour guide who just told me that she remembers the worst day ever was, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And she said, I think there were nine cruise ships in Dubrovnik on the same day. And oh, my God. This was just not sustainable. So the good news is they are uh, limiting the number of cruise ships that can come on any given day. And they published the schedule of when those cruise ships are coming that, you know, from day to day, how many ships are coming and where they're coming from and so forth. So I guess one tip is if you're going to be there at a time when there's a lot of cruising going on, check the website. And if there's a day where you can see there's five, you know, five ships on this day and only one ship the next day, well, the day that there's five ships is a good day to get out of town. It's a good day to do a day trip or go to the beach because a lot of the people on those ships, they're just going to take the bus right into town and they're going to be in all the same sites right downtown and all the same restaurants that you'll be doing kind of if you're, if you're spending the night, um, you know, but it's all concentrated in about a four or five hour period. And then as soon as the 
you know, the ship leaves, you got the place to yourself. So I would say be strategic about knowing when the days are going to be the most crowded and avoiding the main old town areas during that time. And I, I mentioned earlier, July and August is busy and, and cruises can be anytime. But for Dubrovnik in particular, I think going a little farther off season is not a bad plan. In, in some of the smaller islands, I mentioned Far and Korchula, smaller islands do tend to shut down in the off season. So if you go to Korchula at the end of October uh, or middle of October, even you're going to find a lot of restaurants are closed and hotels are closed. Uh, if you go to Dubrovnik during those times, you generally have pretty good weather and it, it, they are a lot less crowded. So I was in Dubrovnik. I think I landed in Dubrovnik on October 1st or something. And it was perfect. I was there for about a week. It was still really warm and sunny and clear. It was far less crowded than it would have been even two or three weeks earlier. Uh, you know, my birthday is October 7th, and I did take the day off that day. And I actually went swimming in the Adriatic in Dubrovnik on October 7th. Oh, nice. Um, a little bit after that, even a couple days after that, it started to cool off a little bit. But I would say push the edges of the season, especially if you're only going to Dubrovnik or Split, another big city. If you're going to the islands, you don't want to get too far off season. But I think even a couple of weeks can make a really big difference. Let's head south a little bit out of uh, Croatia, but stay within the former Yugoslavia. Montenegro is a country that's gaining popularity, but it's still unknown to a lot of North Americans. And I was just wondering, you went down there. Um, KOTOR is a place I really want to go. Tell me a little bit about uh, KOTOR and make the case for Montenegro. Montenegro is, yeah, kind of an underrated destination. And what you might not realize, unless you look carefully at a map, is it's it's very close to the southern tip of Croatia. Of course, it borders Croatia. But from Dubrovnik, you can be at the Montenegrin border in about an hour, hour and a half. You can be crossing into Montenegro. And so the way, you know, you could certainly go and spend uh, several nights or a night or two in Montenegro, um, but it, you can do it in a pretty satisfying way, even as a long day trip from Dubrovnik, especially if you get a bit of an early start. Um, so this be most beautiful part of Montenegro, I think if, if you're going anywhere in Montenegro for a short visit, it would be this gorgeous Bay of Kotor, K-O-T-O-R, Kotor. Um, and this is just this huge kind of, um, it's like a fjord-like inlet. And there are limestone mountains that just go straight up out of the ocean. Uh, it's extremely dramatic scenery. And there's a road that runs right along the water, literally, you're, you're the shoulder is the <laughs> is the Adriatic Sea um, that takes you all the way around. So from Dubrovnik to the main town on that fjord, uh, the town of Kotor itself is about two and a half hours. If you don't have a long wait at the border, it could be three hours, a little more. Um, so that's, you know, three hours to Kotor. And then there's a way you can come back on, on a loop a slightly different way for at least part of the way. So you see some different scenery. That's a very popular day trip from Dubrovnik. Um, I will say you're, you're crossing the border into uh, Montenegro, it can be backed up, especially at busy times. And, you know, this coming January, Croatia is getting the Euro currency and they're also joining the Schengen open, open border zone. Um, so I will say, if you're traveling in 2023, Montenegro and Croatia will now be the border between the EU, the Schengen zone and the non-Schengen countries. So they're a little worried that there could be some even more substantial border delays than usual next year, because it's it's now kind of the outer border of the, of the European open border zone. Um, but, uh, if you have a, a lot of people like to hire a private driver for this trip, um, and I'm, in my guidebook, I recommend several of these drivers where you pay somebody, you know, 250, 300 euros, which sounds like a lot, but they can take up to four people in their car. They say, Hey, meet me at seven 30, uh, outside the main gate of the old town of Dubrovnik and you hop in their car and they just take care of all the driving and they know how to pace it. And they know the, 
the secret secondary border that might be less crowded and they'll take you to maybe a spot for a good lunch or dinner. Um, and it can be a very satisfying day out. Yeah, we've hired drivers before and it's always a good idea to have another couple to go with and split the expense because it can be expensive, but it's money well spent if they're getting you through the border quickly and easily. Um, you, you've been to Montenegro several times, but this time you were finally able to check something off your personal bucket list. Tell me about visiting Lovsen, Lovsen Mountain. Is that Love Chen? Think? Yeah. Love Chen Mountain. Love Chen. Yeah, this was a fun, you know, you asked about how I, you know, balance going back to places and just sort of just quote, just updating versus new discoveries. And this was a great example of something I've always wanted to see. And I've, I've been to Montenegro, I don't know, eight or 10 times. And I managed to make it there through updating my guidebook every, I don't know, two or three years. And for the, at, at least the last 10 or 12 years, every time I go to uh, Montenegro, I'm usually on a day trip from Dubrovnik, I say, if I have time and if I have perfect weather, I'm going to go up to this mountaintop called Lovchen, which is high, high above the Bay of Kotor that I just described. Um, it's basically a mausoleum that was built for this great Montenegrin king, Petar Njegos, uh, and it was decorated with beautiful, beautiful statues by a Croatian sculptor that I'm sort of obsessed with named Ivan Meštrović. If you've been uh, traveled around Croatia at all, you see these giant statues of historical figures all over Croatian cities and towns. Those are usually by Ivan Meštrović, a really talented early 20th century sculptor. And anyway, he decorated this mausoleum. And the cool thing about Lovchen is it's on the top of the mountain. And because Montenegro is a very mountainous country, uh, you're kind of on one of the higher points, at least in this part of the country. And you can see, I think, I don't know statistically what it is, but it's something like a third of the entire country of Montenegro. Oh, Plus, wow. you can see all the way to Croatia. You can see all the way to Bosnia. You can see all the way to, I think... I think you might be able to see a little bit of Albania even. Um, and so it's this incredible viewpoint. Yeah. So on this trip, uh, I had a driver that gave me uh, gave me some time that day and he drove me in and we did all of our, our guidebook updating tasks. And we were finished in KOTOR about 4 p.m. And I said, well, I can either go back to Dubrovnik and be back in time for dinner or <laughs> come this far. The weather was absolutely flawless. Do it. I said to the guy, would you be willing to do this for me? And he said, yeah, that sounds like a fun adventure. And so we hopped in the car and it was from KOTOR. I think it was a good hour and a half or longer. And I mean, basically straight up, twisty roads, switchback roads, straight up. And then you get to the parking lot. And I actually didn't know this until I got there, but there's a, a tunnel with 300 stairs you have to walk to get up to the top. I didn't realize there'd be that much of a climb, but man, it was so worthwhile because I it's it, I got up there and it was cr crystal clear and I could see, you know, into four different countries and I could see all the way to the capital of Montenegro, Podgorica which by car is like, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hour drive from where I was. Um, and it was just a, a stunning evening. And I was there just in time for the sunset. And uh, it's one of those things, I think, you know, one of you asked how things are different here after the pandemic. And I think I've kind of, I was maybe getting a little jaded in 2019, by 2019, of just kind of, you know, getting in a rut and just focusing on um, my guidebook assignments and so forth. And I really committed myself this year. I really want to sort of slow down, appreciate things like every day. I want to take several moments to just count my blessings that, you know, it's an incredible privilege to be able to travel. And I think uh, we all know this, especially after the pandemic when, when we couldn't. And uh, so I've decided I'm going to sort of take these opportunities while I have them. And I didn't regret, we got back to Dubrovnik, you know, at nine 30 or 10 o'clock at night is pitch black most of the way. But it was totally worth it because I got to check this amazing experience off my bucket list. 
before I let you go, Cameron, you spent this past summer or part of this past summer in Scotland and on social media, you made some comments about the famous Loch Ness and some folks got upset by this. Um, Tell me a little bit about that story. What went down? Of all the things I didn't expect this year, this is the year of expect the unexpected. I did not expect to become a part of the the Scottish uh, tabloid news cycle for a couple of days <laughs> this summer. But yeah, basically, I spent three weeks driving around all of Scotland, uh, updating our guidebook uh, for the first time in a few years post-pandemic. And, you know, I love Scotland. I adore Scotland. I've worked on that book before many times, and I, I know it well. And I love almost everything in Scotland. Um, but I have to tell you, I was about halfway through the trip, and I drove past uh, Loch Ness on my way to my next stop. And, and you know, we have it in our book, and we kind of we give a little bit of a, yeah, it's famous. Everyone stops because they think they're going to see the monster and here's what you can do. And I thought, well, I'll stop off and see how I feel about it. And I got to tell you, I just, I got to, if, if you've been to Scotland, to, to this area, I think Scotland has a lot of really beautiful um, and really authentic pieces of its cultural heritage that it really has a gift for um, celebrating and making accessible to travelers. And I think I was in kind of in the zone of just feeling really um, excited about all the the deep cultural experiences I was having in Scotland. But you come to Loch Ness, and I think something just snapped inside of me because uh, the the area. Now I should I should make this clear because I, I was uh, I got a lot of feedback about this. There are parts of Loch Ness that are very beautiful, um, especially if you go on the opposite side from where the main highway runs and other parts. And if you if you have a lot of time to spend, I'm sure you could find some gorgeous little areas on Loch Ness. Unfortunately, the thing that tourists see, and frankly, the thing that the local tourist industry pushes people towards, is this little corner of this giant lock that's extremely overdeveloped with the tackiest kind of tourism you can imagine. And, you know, really um, kind of crass, almost gross gift shops selling everything you can imagine, not just for the Loch Ness Monster, um, but for, you know, the, the, the worst version of Scotland, basically. And I just got really frustrated because, uh, you know, I feel like I'm I'm uh, somebody who really respects and values authentic pockets of local culture and traditions. And this just felt to me like the opposite of that. So uh, on the rest of the drive across the middle of Scotland, I kind of composed this little Facebook or blog post in, in my imagination of, you know, kind of a a tongue-in-cheek takedown of Loch Ness from a tourist perspective. I used to love uh, reading Roger Ebert's movie reviews, and he oh, yeah. had a whole book of his his most negative reviews. It was called I Hated, Hated, Hated This Movie, a whole book of him basically taking down movies that made him made him crazy. And uh, sort of like that, like, you know, he loves movies, but if it's a bad movie, he really hates it, I think, because of how much he loves the rest of cinema. Right. And that's kind of how I felt about this. It's like I love travel. I love Scotland, but this is like the worst version of of tourism and the worst version of Scotland. So I got to my destination and that night I just rattled off this kind of lengthy rant on my Facebook page. Um, just first of all, outlining what I thought sort of with with great exaggeration, what I thought kind of the the things I didn't like about Loch Ness. But I also said part of and this is what I really believe. Part of what bothered me about it is I saw how many people were there. And I had just spent a couple of days in the area around Inverness, which is 45 minutes away. And I'd been to so many more beautiful, interesting, engaging, cultural, authentic cultural experiences that were even closer to Inverness than Loch Ness is that had nowhere near the number of people I saw at Loch Ness. And so the whole point of my post was, first of all, to tee off on Loch Ness, but it was also to say, hey, if you're planning a trip, here are some things. If you have a half day to spend, don't go on a lake cruise on Loch Ness. 
thinking you're going to see an imaginary monster, like spend that time, for example, going to a sheepdog show where you can watch a trained sheepdog actually herd sheep in the middle of a Scottish farmland, you know, or go to Culloden Battlefield, which is the most important historic site in in Scotland and and has a beautiful story to tell. There's all the go to a pub in Inverness and listen to some traditional folk music. There's so much more to do that tells you more about Scotland. And anyway, so I posted this thing and forgot about it. And I woke up the next morning and I'd gotten a really good response from travelers because I think they, they look, they look to me and count on me for giving them good advice about how to best spend their time. Um, but <laughs> uh, at some point I started getting all these na- nasty comments from Scottish people who said, how dare you come to our country and besmirch this beautiful loch?" And that's what I realized that a tabloid had picked it up. A, a Glasgow tabloid had picked up this blog post, you know, with everything going on in the world in 2022, I still don't understand why a newspaper <laughs> is trolling my Facebook social media presence for a news story. I still can't figure out why someone thought this was worth elevating because it was never intended for Scottish people. I didn't even do it as I was accused later of it was a publicity stunt. I had no interest in that publicity, you know, but it got picked up actually by five or six other tabloids. And I, I, I screenshotted all the headlines, but it was, you know, there was for about two days, every every crappy newspaper in, in the northern part of Great Britain had... um Headlines like American travel writer, you know, dares to insult the beautiful Loch Ness or something like that. Oh, my goodness. Um, It was, yeah, it was a very surreal experience. And uh, I I knew it was a big deal when someone from, actually someone from BBC Scotland reached out to me and said, would you like to come on our our primetime news show? And defend yourself. (laughs) Yeah, their version of 2020 to, uh, how did they put it, to to elaborate on your thoughts on Loch Ness. (laughs) I actually said no. And, you know, I'm not it's as as evidence that I wasn't seeking. I mean, what would I be publicizing? I'm not publicizing a, an American guidebook for a Scottish audience. Um, I will say I had the regret I had about it was that I did. Of course, I painted with a broad brush because it was it was satire. And of course, somebody who really loved Loch Ness and who knows knows it beyond that kind of touristy fringe. Uh, had every right to be offended. And I reached out to a few of them who commented on my Facebook page and actually had some nice conversations with them. Like, yeah, you're right. I should someday I should come back and spend a little more time and see see more than what's there. Um, but in my defense, if you go to Loch Ness area, everything is just steering you. All of the tourist industry is steering you to this this one junky little stretch, this kind of gauntlet of garbage. And, um, you know, it, it, I think I, I thought a lot later about why why was this why did this trigger me so much? And I think the fact is we couldn't travel for two years and that was really hard. I I travel three or four months a year and I have for more than 20 years and I take great pride in it. It's not just my work. It's, it's my passion. And, um, you know, I, when I couldn't travel for those two years, I took actually some time off uh, work and I wrote a memoir about my uh, experiences as a travel writer called the temporary European. And in that book, I kind of relived some of my favorite stories. And I sort of pledged in sort of the epilogue to that book that when I could get back to travel, I was going to make sure I continued, not just continued to travel in a, in a, in a, in a positive way, but I was going to really challenge myself to seek out real, true, authentic experiences and really fully appreciate them. And I think it was when I came into Loch Ness, to this particular part of Loch Ness, I think it made me crazy because it was sort of, you know, a lot of us are saying after the pan- pandemic, have we learned nothing? And that's that's kind of how I felt when I came into this little village. I was like, have we learned nothing? Like you would, we we all said during the pandemic, I promise when I get, you know, at least I did, when we get back to travel, I'm going to do it better, you know? And here's the worst version of tourism in Scotland is thriving bigger than ever before. And it just made me crazy. There's, there's so much 
better things that you can see and do with your time in Scotland. And it just deeply offended me that this was attracting so many, you know, otherwise smart travelers to waste their time and, and their money. Um, so I stand by it. I feel bad if, 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 of the toes I, tep- the toes I stepped on. And um, I think there's certainly a lot to be said for other aspects of Loch Ness, but in terms of the way it's marketed by the local tourism industry, it's really a shame. I think it's a missed opportunity. Two thoughts come to mind as you're telling me this fantastic story, Cameron. First is that one of the things that I like about you and the guidebooks that you write is that you guys are fair umpires. You call balls and strikes and you call them like you see them. And it's not, you know, based on what the tourism board is saying or, you know, what is the most popular thing on TripAdvisor. It's, you know, really looking at this. Is this a worthwhile activity? Because people have limited amount of time and money. And, you know, if they're spending a bunch of time at Loch Ness, they're not able to spend it somewhere else. So so that's the first thing, and I really appreciate that. And the second thing is, I'm so glad you mentioned Roger Ebert, because he's a fellow University of Illinois alum, <laughs> and uh, he worked at the newspaper, obviously long before I did, uh, but I worked at the uh, radio station there. So I'm always happy to hear a uh, University of Illinois alum getting some uh, props, and obviously I'm a big Roger Ebert fan, so <laughs> thanks for that too. Yeah, it's I, I actually was thinking of him uh, as I was, it, you know, because also I'm I'm traveling for these long periods. And to be honest, part of it was it's sometimes you just need to entertain yourself. And I always used to love reading his reviews where he would take down a, a, a poorly made movie. And uh, I it was I, I kind of it. Frankly, I was I was probably also just a little bored. And this was sort of an entertaining thing. But, you know, when when Roger Ebert takes down a movie, it's not intended as an insult for all the people who worked on the movie. He knows that a lot of effort went into it and that there's a lot of talented people who really threw themselves into it. But their fact was, you know, the fact is it didn't work and it wasn't successful what it was trying to do. And sometimes I think he would get really mad when something was just done lazily or thoughtlessly. And I think that was the same response I had. You know, these people who run B&Bs on Loch Ness wrote to me and and said, how dare you? This is my livelihood. And I said, yeah, I, I feel actually I feel bad for you because you're working hard and trying to provide people with a good value. But the fact is the local tourist board, you know, the local tourist board posted to to sort of, I think they were trying to sort of piggyback on this publicity that I'd created that I didn't even want, but they posted and and kind of said, um, how dare you, you know, make fun of Loch Ness? Don't you realize we were just recently featured as uh, on the list of the top 10 most Instagrammable sites in Europe? (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to say, well, you've made my point. You want to travel based on what's Instagrammable, have at it. But from from my point of view, that can be good travel, but that's not necessarily good travel. And this is a case where that, for me, that Venn diagram doesn't overlap. Well, Cameron Hewitt, thank you so much for being on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. It's so great to have you back talking about Montenegro and Croatia and even Loch Ness. And uh, wish you a lot more happy travels and big success in the future. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much, Brent. It's been great being back. And I wish you very, and you and your audience, very happy travels going forward. Okay, there you go. What a fun conversation that was with Cameron Hewitt. I just love that Loch Ness monster kerfuffle story. It was just great. I've got a link to Cameron's social media, as well as a link to his book, The Temporary European, in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED 
zero. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we are in Seattle for a new taco invention and a genius way to eat cupcakes. So don't miss that. Until then, DestinationEatDrink.com is open for business. I just posted a story about a delicious Spanish dish that's sweet and savory from Andalusia. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash eggplant. And if you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on your podcast app, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever we're on all of them. I would appreciate your five-star rating. Thank you so very, very much. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who's in trouble with the Chicago Tourism Board for putting ketchup on his hot dog, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.